0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 47. It's titled, Should You Invest for Income or Total Return? Now, that's an interesting question that I thought had been resolved many decades ago. Throughout my professional investing career, we invested for total return because we were working primarily with institutional endowments and foundations, and they were subject to an act, at least in the United States. Each state adopted some version of what is known as the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, and that is an act that charities use to figure, to determine, all right, it's sort of model language, how do we manage our investment portfolio and how do we spend our investment portfolio? And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about some of the provisions of that act in a few minutes, but one of, one of those provisions talks about sort of total return investing. But when I left my position and, and started living mostly on my investments and spent a little more time reading what was going on in the financial blogosphere, I found that income investing was sort of all the rage. And and I realize that many retirees for many years could invest primarily using income. But with interest rates so low and yields so low, it really, most retirees or near retirees can't live solely on income. And yet many still are, and there's some definite risk to income investing that I want to talk about today. There's risk to all types of investing, but we we need need to invest in a way that we mitigate as many of those risks as possible. But let's start with this, this whole idea of, of MIFA, which is what we call the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act. How does a board member or a, a chief investment officer at a college endowment invest in terms of what, what are their laws or provisions or principles that they follow? And there really are. This act talks about that when managing and investing in an institutional fund, that they should only incur costs that are appropriate and reasonable in relation to the assets and to the purpose of the institution and to the skills available to the institution. That's an important component that we should all consider. What What is the cost that we're paying to have somebody help us with our investing Or what are we paying overall for our investing in terms of the underlying vehicles we might be using if we manage our own investments? And so by law, institutions need to be aware that they're paying appropriate and reasonable costs. The other major provision is to, to make a reasonable effort to verify facts relevant to the management and investment of the fund. What does that mean? Do your homework. Understand what you're investing in. When you look at when endowments and other investors get taken by or swindled by some unscrupulous operator, it's often because the investors didn't verify the facts. They didn't do additional due diligence. They didn't check references. It's important to understand are the promises made by the advisor reasonable? If the promising 20 25% type return, that's in most cases is not a reasonable return expectation. So we have to verify the facts. Another provision of a MIFA then is factors that should be considered when managing and investing in institutional funds. So, these are more investment-related items, and these are very, very important for individuals' investors. You could consider the same thing. So, here are the, there's a list of seven or eight items that trustees of an endowment and foundation and their staff should consider when investing the fund. The first is general economic conditions. Now, this is, this is an interesting provision. We should not be blind to what is going on in the economy. And that is certainly one of the things that that I consider and talk about on, on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. It's one of the factors that we look at. What are economic trends? Very, very important. A second provision is investors should consider the possible effect of inflation and deflation. We should be mindful... As, as investors, of the, of the impact uh, of prices, of inflation deflation, inflation. And that's one reason when you are an income-only investor, you often are not cognizant of the impact of inflation. Third criteria that institutional funds need to consider, according to the Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Fund Act, is the expected tax consequences, if any, of investment decisions or strategies. It's important to look at taxes. Is, is, is the strategy tax efficient? And, and that's we'll leave it at that. The fourth thing then is the role that each investment or course of action plays within the overall investment portfolio of the fund. In other words, when we make an investment decision, we need to understand the impact on the total portfolio, not just the sleeve of our portfolio. And so when we look at our overall asset allocation, when we make any decision, we need to look at the whole and not necessarily focus just on the parts. The next provision, the fifth one, really gets to this idea of income versus total return. One of the factors that institutional funds consider is the expected total return from income and the appreciation of investments way back prior to the first version of of MIFA was adopted in 1972. Prior to that, most endowments and foundations invested solely on an income basis and only spent income, and it was very much an income focus. So this was really a sea change to say, no, the focus should be total return from income and appreciation of investments. And it's because of this provision that throughout my 15-year investment career, we focused on structuring investment portfolios both for institutions and high net worth individuals for a total return basis because we wanted – was a total return 7% didn't necessarily matter whether it came through income and appreciation. It usually came from both. And, and I'll show you in a few minutes when we, we focus exclusively on income, that can often lead to suboptimal decisions. Then a couple other provisions to consider is other resources of the institution, and and in your case, that would be other resources that you might have. If you don't have any other income coming in, let's say from employment, the way that you invest will be very different than somebody that's still in an accumulation phase has other income, and so you have to consider the overall resources of the institution, and there's a, there's a couple others that, that I won't go into that, that aren't really relevant here, but these are all very important criteria for both institutions and individuals. Now, when it comes to how much should an institution spend, or even an individual, here are the same considerations. They very much mirror the, the duration and preservation of the endowment fund. Now, endowments are structured to invest for per- perpetuity, and so... The duration, the preservation of the fund is critical. Now, in your case, if you're a retiree and you're a retiree, you're still accumulating, you have a defined life. But it could be a 30 to 40-year type retirement. And which I tell you, when we look at trustees, your typical endowment trustee is in their mind, they're thinking, you know, we have to invest this for perpetuity. But it's hard to even imagine 30 to 40 years. 30 to 40 years seems like perpetuity. And so when we invest, we're, we should invest, keeping in mind really the preservation of our assets because our time horizons typically are 30 to 40 years. Second thing to consider when spending, this is again from MIFA, is the purpose of the institution and the endowment fund. We should look at the same thing with our own investments. What is the purpose of the investments? If this particular investment is to save for a house, that's a very different purpose than our retirement assets. We have to look at the, the in whole, as I mentioned, but also we can look at the purpose of individual funds. MIFA also requires institutional investors to consider, in terms of their spending, both the general economic conditions and the effect of inflation and deflation, so the same thing as for the to generate returns, the investing for returns, same focus is used on spending. The amount that we're, we spend should we should consider what's going on with the economy, what's going on with the markets in general, and the f- impact of inflation and defla- and deflation. Should also consider when spending, the expect expect expected total return from income and appreciation, the total return. So we focus on it when it comes to investing, and we focus on it when it comes to spending. And the final two provisions are other resources of the institution. Again, we talked about that with the, the investing. What other resources are there that could impact the spending? And finally, the investment policy of the institution. Every endowment and foundation that I am aware of, or the vast majority, have some type of investment policy that defines the objectives of the institutions, the target allocation or how the assets are invested, it specifies often spending, it could have restrictions, but it's really a strategic plan for an endowment and foundation. As individuals, we should have some a similar type of investment policy. Perhaps it's not written out in as much detail, but we should be mindful of the purpose of our investments. Our objectives are the risks that we're willing to take, and one of those fundamental decisions is should we focus on income versus total return? I am firmly in the camp of focusing on total return, being mindful of income, perhaps at times overweighting income-oriented strategy. But by and large, I think investors, all investors are served by focusing on both the income and the capital appreciation. Now, when we think about income, let's just start with the basic corporation. What can they do with their earnings? They have a choice, and this is where income investing comes into play. A corporation, let's say they have a stellar year, they have earnings, they can do a number of things. One, they can increase their dividends. So when you're an income investor, you're getting most of your return from dividends on stocks let's say, on real estate investment trusts, but you could also be getting interest on bonds. And so dividends are very, very important to you. And corporations can choose to increase their dividends when they have earnings. But that's just one of seven things that they could do. They could also repurchase shares. And often, corporations, even more so the last 10 years, have many cases have focused more on share repurchases than they have on increasing dividends. In theory, it should have a similar effect, but why do they focus more on share repurchases? Primarily because that increases. If you, if you reduce the number of shares outstanding, it actually increases the earnings per share, and it's a way that companies can, act, can grow, quote-unquote, profits per share in a way that, that's mechanically engineered. It doesn't necessarily come from ingenuity or more revenue or increased profit margin. It simply comes by having those profits that it, that the company is generating spread over a fewer number of shares. And so, voila, the earnings per share goes up. And theoretically, that will boost the, pro- the price. And oftentimes, the management team's incentives – are aligned, their compensations are tied to the stock price going up and perhaps even the earnings per share going up and less on, tied to whether the dividend increased. So many companies are focused more on share repurchases than increasing dividends. But those are just two things that companies can do with earnings. They could also reduce debt. They could use it for mergers and acquisitions. They could focus on capital expenditures. They could pay their workers more money. Or they could just keep it. So those are seven things, and they're really divided by things that impact shareholders, such as dividends and share repurchases impact shareholders. Others impact shareholders down the road based on the perhaps future payoff from some of the actions that the company takes, such as a merger and acquisition and capital expenditures. Perhaps even pay workers more will. Make their workers more satisfied, more productive, and those are things down the road. An argument in favor of income investing is that it's very, very hard to manage a corporation, particularly a public traded corporation. And oftentimes these senior managers are are just not they're not geniuses, right? It's hard. The world is extremely complex, complex adaptive systems. And sometimes the best use of cash is to just send it back to the shareholders and not let management make mistakes with the companies in terms of their CapEx, in terms of mergers and acquisitions. And so if you can get the cash up front, that's great. Except then you have to decide what to do with the cash. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide 7 key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com/david. That's netsuite.com/david. netsuite.com/david. Earlier I mentioned that income-oriented investors could with their exclusive focus on income strategies be making some suboptimal decisions. And why is that? Well, because there are certain risks inherent to income investing. And investors need to be aware of these risks and make sure they're not unwittingly taking on significant risk in order to generate more income. So the risks include concentration risk, valuation risk, interest rate risk, and leverage risk. Let me spend a few minutes on each. Concentration risk is having too much exposure to a given sector or asset type. Many dividend-oriented stock funds or ETFs generate a higher dividend yield, so they look more attractive relative to their competitors because they're concentrated in certain sectors and industries. As you look through the sectors of the stock market, there are certain sectors that just generally pay higher dividends, financials, banks, and REITs real estate investment trusts, and also utilities pay higher dividends. And so sometimes these dividend-oriented funds could be overly concentrated in the financial utilities and REIT sectors. And so it's important if you're a dividend investor, if you're in a dividend-oriented fund, and they can be very effective vehicles, particularly dividend-oriented funds that not just don't just pay dividends, but they actually are focusing on companies and sectors that are growing their dividends. So sort of Dividend grower funds can be a very effective strategy, but not the only strategy to use, because that's where this concentration risk comes in. And your dividend fund should be diversified among many different sectors. The second risk then is valuation risk. There are times when particular income-oriented strategies become very, very popular, and as a result, their valuations get pushed up. And an example that That I would give is real estate investment trust. As I look at valuations of REITs right now, they appear overvalued. On the Money for the Rest of Us hub, next week, well, this week I did an audio lesson on REITs and what drives REIT returns. Next week I'm releasing an audio lesson on the fundamental for REITs and where they stand on a valuation basis and describe what to look for in order to determine if REITs are overvalued or undervalued. And so you can get more information on the Hub at MoneyForTheRestOfUsHub.com. But the point is we need to be cognizant of valuation because income strategies can be good, but there's times when income strategies become too popular. And just like with any asset class, the valuation go, can go up, and so the future returns can go down, and you might not get the return that you expected. Now, this third risk is very, very important, particularly given the environment that we're in, and that is interest rate risk. Interest rate risk is the risk an investment will go down in value as interest rates increase. And if you've listened to earlier episodes of this show, episode 22, Will Interest Rates Ever Increase? Episode 9, What Investment Rate of Return Can You Expect? I went over this principle as it relates to bonds. Bonds will go down in price as interest rates increase. And the longer the maturity of the bond, the longer its duration, the more it will go down. So if you re-listen to those episodes, you can get that principle down. But it doesn't just apply to bonds. Other income-oriented strategies are affected by interest rates. That would be REITs, that would be preferred stock and MLPs, and other income-oriented strategies. And why is that? Well, because they're competing, these yield-oriented strategies are competing with bonds for investors. And so as rates go up and bonds become more attractive, REITs and other income-oriented strategies need to reflect that. And the dollar amount of your dividend from your REIT your real estate investment trust isn't necessarily going to go up right away. And so if the dollar amount's not going up, the only way the yield can go up to be more competitive with bonds is to have the price of the security fall. Now, that doesn't mean that the price of REITs and other income-oriented strategies will plummet because one reason interest rates are going up is because the fundamentals of the economy are improving. And so rents should be going up occupancy should be going up, so the REIT should be generating more income overall. But there definitely is a relationship between interest rates and the price of a number of these income-oriented strategies, at least on the short-term basis. Hopefully longer term, they'll be able to generate more income to offset that, but at least it's a risk that you need to be aware of. The final risk related to income-oriented investing strategies is leverage risk. Some income strategies, such as mortgage REITs, some closed-end funds, borrow money in order to increase the yield on their portfolio. And so they're borrowing short-term, and then they're going out and buying more of these income-oriented securities. And that makes the yield much more attractive. You, you can if you do a screen of closed end funds, you, you oftentimes can see a yield of eight, nine, ten percent. That is not a straight vanilla yield or they're investing in security earning that. They're using leverage to accomplish that. Mortgage REITs and mortgage REITs are REITs where they invest in mortgage debts, do the same thing. They have borrowed money in order to imp- bump up the yield on the particular holding. It's a risk because when you use leverage, like anything, it can be, can be very volatile. So when prices fall for some of these strategies, those, those losses can be compounded because of the margin or the leverage used. And so leverage is not bad. You just need to be aware of it as an income-oriented investor, how much debt is involved, and recognize that, that they, these strategies will tend to be more volatile. We saw that. When interest rates began or fear of the taper back, I think it was 2012, maybe 2013, in, in the US, a number of mortgage REITs fell 15-20% because they were highly leveraged and there was the concern of their impact as rates would increase. So the bottom line is income strategies can be very effective. There are risk, but just like with an institutional fund, institutional endowment. I believe investors should invest on a total return basis. Have an element of income because when you have the income in hand, you are not reliant on the ingenuity of company management to figure out how to boost profits. So you just got you you have those profits in hands. But you also need some strategies to generate some capital appreciation. So just like with any investment, highly diversified, focus on both income strategies and total return strategies. So that is episode 47. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my Insider's Guide, and I will email you those show notes. That's where I'm answering listener questions and providing other valuable content to members of that Insider's Guide. I wanted to speak briefly on pricing for Money for the Rest of Us Hub. I launched the Hub back in December, and I in that first episode when I mentioned it, I talked about charter members and how charter members were going to be able to lock in the best pricing available ever in terms of the subscription rate. And that rate was $19.95 a month. That was the only option. I offered just a monthly rate. We got to those charter members. I kept it open, and I kept that rate. Up until last week, and then I closed charter membership, and I increased the rates. I increased it from 1995 a month to 24.95 a month, and I also offered an annual rate of 247. And I, I kept it there, and I stared at that rate, and I thought about that episode, episode 27, what is the right price? And I thought, this is just too high. I'm not comfortable charging that. Now, this comes from someone that charged a minimum of $50,000 when I was an institutional investment advisor. But I'm looking at individuals and what's, what is a fair price for what I'm providing so that I can actually exceed expectations and provide even greater value. I went ahead and I lowered the price back to nineteen ninety five a month or $199 a year. I like how that looks on the screen. And as I've done further research, I just think that's a better price. My concern with putting it back to the original price is some charter members will feel like maybe I hoodwinked them in or encouraged them to get in before the doors close. If you're a charter member and you feel that way, please email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. I will make it right, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to where you feel better about that because the intent was not to mislead, and and I'm not necessarily a very good marketer from that aspect. I just want to provide the service to help you out, but do it at a fair price, and that price will be 1995 95 a month or 199 a year. You can make a choice. That annual price is 15% off, the annualized monthly rate. Get information of that, moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk pro- profile. I've not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing general education and help on money, investing, in the economy. Have a great week.